is the lost sheep and the good shepherd. I, <clears throat> I think the Lord gave me that because it gets down right to the basics of, of what we're doing here and what this is all about. The lost, the lost sheep has some awareness of his being lost, but he doesn't really comprehend the magnitude of the situation. And it's not until the lost sheep is found that he begins to understand the blessing of being found. And so Jesus, Jesus tells us uh, the story of the lost sheep to help us to realize that that's our condition. And <clears throat> that being found by the good shepherd is the plan of salvation and is the way home back to the Father. Because after all, we are more than sheep aren't we? To the Father, we're, we're everything. To the Father, we, one of us, is worth the sacrifice and the life of his own son. Even at the risk of being separated from his son for all eternity. Because it wasn't, a, it wasn't an act. It wasn't a, a play. A make, it wasn't make-believe. When Jesus came, he put himself in our situation with the possibility of failure. The possibility of it playing out in such a way that the rebel against God, the liar and the murderer, would succeed and prove somehow that the God of love isn't what everyone had thought he, he is. And the ones that went with him against God and said he's selfish, he's egotistical, he only wants you to worship him because he's got the power. Uh, he just wants to see your obeisance because if you don't do that, He'll maybe zap you, withdraw life from you. So all those accusations and charges, had they been true, or had God in our situation not been able to be faithful with the, with the burden of temptation upon him, God would have been eternally separated from his son. And, and as Leroy pointed out so well today in both uh, his pre-prayer talk and prayer. Jesus would have done it, would, would do it, had did it for just one, for you. So anytime that you think that somebody is better than you are, or more spiritual than you are, or that a group of people somehow they're good but you're not or they're worthy of salvation but you're not think about it God loves you that much 
that he gave everything that a person could give to find you and to bring you so well back into the fold that you realize that you are his son or his daughter, not just the sheep that's been found. And we look at in chapter 15 of Luke, and there's the parable about the, the lost sheep. And it's interesting, you know, Jesus told the story, or he said to the, those that were around him, if you being sinners can give good gifts to your children, and they knew they could, if you have that much natural love for your children, how much more will the Father in heaven give you what you ask him for? You being sinners can have love in your hearts for your own children and give them what they request, not some, something less. How much more will your Father in heaven, who's all good and all loving, give you all things that you would ask for in your need and in faith? Well, similarly, Jesus draws on natural human experience and says to, his, to the people listening in chapter 15, from what you know about human life and shepherds, what shepherd would not leave the 90 and 9 in the wilderness, the 99 sheep in the wilderness, and go out in the middle of the night at inconvenience, discomfort, and risk to himself to go find that one lost sheep. Based on human experience, you know that his, his listeners knew that that was more the rule than the exception. That shepherds, that they took their responsibility toward their sheep. Perhaps they, they knew that they actually had affection for their sheep, not just responsibility. They had a, a loving responsibility toward their sheep to such an extent that it was common knowledge that 99 sheep would be left in the wilderness in the middle of the night and that shepherd would go out at inconvenience, sacrifice of a, of a warm, comfortable place to sleep and go out and brave the dangers in the wilderness in the night to go find that one lost sheep. And, he's, and basically, he's saying a similar thing. He said, if, if, if a human being that you're familiar with would have that much sense of affection and responsibility, how much more does your Father in heaven value you as a lost sheep? And what wouldn't he do to find you? Isn't he saying that? And then, and then to go further, he says, and just like you know that the good shepherd, when he found the sheep, would put it, put it on his shoulders. And carrying him back home would be rejoicing. And calling together his friends and relatives and neighbors and say to them, rejoice with me, for I have found 
my sheep which was lost. And then he goes on and says, I say to you, and here we're talking about angels this morning, giving real physical protection in Sabbath school. That that's real. And Alan's daughter knows, and he knows, and we know now, how real that protection is. I'm sure the police are still scratching their head and telling that story. Just like there are doctors in the hospital that do not understand many cases of survival. It's beyond human logic and experience. So those angels are still working and protecting on our behalf. And, and Jesus alludes to the angels and he says, I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. And he, he says elsewhere that the angels in heaven rejoice. Now, if, you know, I, I'm thinking that Alan's daughter is in tune enough with the Lord that she knows where her protection came from. And the family knows. But if you are a really lost sheep, really lost, and you experience that kind of deliverance, you might not still get it. You might chalk it up to a luck, lucky outcome, you know. When I was on my 22nd birthday, I was apparently so lost that I might not have gotten it after I had a similar deliverance from a certain, a very certain accident, and maybe death, and I would have been responsible for the death of other people. And it was through my speeding and my losing my brakes because I bottomed out one too many times and broke my braking system. And as I tried to slow down for a red light with maybe 30 yards, of distance, I was going about 50 miles an hour, and it was just, I remember seeing one or two children in the back of one of the cars that I was going to ram at about 40 miles an hour. And through my cursing, I had a, I said, God help me. He knew I didn't want to kill those children. And I knew, and he knew that I knew I was guilty. And, you know, and I won't give you the, the details except to say that I had a split second to think of a possible way out and, and jumped over a big concrete divide island and scraped the bottom of the car, which happened to be filled up with gas for the first time ever, like 25 gallons of gasoline, scraped the bottom of the car over the concrete, blew two tires, blew all the shocks, limped down the other side of the street hoping that there, I might have some alternative not to hit people. And wound up hitting nobody. Little old lady with those old-fashioned shopping carts that they used to pull, running for her life. <laughs> Slowed down just enough so that when I was on the opposite side of the street, 
I thought it's possible I won't hit these people stopped for the red light in the opposite direction and made a, one of those too fast a turns into the side street, but made it without slipping. And went in the side street, slowed down enough by then that I parked the car, shut off the ignition, and got out. And, <clears throat> and about 200 people came pouring out of the shops and stores because they thought there had been a terrible two-car or multi-car accident. They heard so much noise with that car, with my vehicle, scraping over the concrete island and limping down the side of that road that they were sure they were going to see a terrible accident. And they saw nothing. And I heard people say, where is it? Where is it? Where is it? And I was so grateful that they didn't seem to know it was me. <laughs> you know, you relieved, shocked, and embarrassed. But very relieved that they didn't know it was me. Until, well, they didn't know it was me, but suddenly there was a very tall person in my face looking down on me who said to me, it was a woman, looked like a woman, and she said, boy, God loves you. And she put her hand out, and her hand just engulfed mine. That's how big her hand was. And I was like, you know, it's kind of like, I don't know how you would feel in that situation, but <clears throat> I was kind of happy that she was out of my face whenever she, you know, kind of like, you know, you're impressed by the truth of it, but at the same time, it's like, don't let anybody else realize it's me, even though you know it's me, you know? And then she was gone. I mean, she was so gone. But, you know, I wasn't a Christian, so I didn't think like, well, you know, certain kind of people disappear, you know? I mean, I, I just didn't know. I found a telephone, called my brother. We pulled, we, we towed my car about three or four or five miles to the house. And in the car, as I'm steering my broken down car home, the voice of God says to me, and I didn't recognize it as God's voice, it was this. It was, Steve, I had been telling people as I screwed up in college for most of four years that I wasn't going to, that I was going to die when I was 22. So I don't know, we have all these cop-outs, you know? Well, if you're going to die when you're 22 and you don't believe in God, I mean, you believe in God, but you don't understand your responsibility to him and salvation or any of that, then what does it matter what you do? See, if, if there's no salvation and, and you're not going to, you know, like, so if you screw up and you don't graduate or, you know, you disappoint your parents or whatever, it doesn't, you know, so we do these things, right? So the question, the question that was, that was, it came to my mind was, so you were going to die when you're 22? And the next question was, how old are you today, Stephen? Oh, 22. My 22nd birthday? Are you glad you didn't die? Are you glad? Are you happy? Are you relieved? Are you grateful that you didn't have an accident? That would be nice. It would be even, even with that. It probably took another two or three years before I realized my need for a savior. But I, I, I don't know, you know, six foot six women 
dressed in a white nun's kind of outfit uh, aren't very common. So I don't know. That may have been, she may have been my guardian angel. But I was, you know, I was, you know, people are in different degrees of being lost. Now what's really, what's really great, well, you know, there's the lost sheep that has some awareness of their, of their being lost. The lost coin is not even alive. The lost coin is so lost that they don't even know they're lost. I mean, they are really lost. But, but, but God still searches for them and finds even some of those. Right? Now, once you've been found, once you've been found, sometimes you kind of lose yourself again, don't you? Have you had that experience? Or at least, let me put it this way. You don't rejoice. You don't praise God as much as you should. You don't really... It takes a while to learn that the shepherd really, really is good and that you really, really want to follow him. You know, there's still that little tendency to maybe take those deviations that could get you lost again. So let's look, take a quick look at, at uh, Psalm 23. And I, th I think that Psalm 23 is about the lost sheep who's been found and knows he's found and is beginning to rejoice in his relationship with the Good Shepherd. Because Jesus said, you know what he said. Let me, let me, let's just look at the real scripture here. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 11, I am the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd gives his life for the sheep. And 10.16 says, and the sheep hear and know my voice. So if you're one of those sheep, and if you're not, you should become one and get found. But if you're, if you're a found sheep, which I think most of us are, let's look at Psalm 23 and see what some of the things that he's telling us about our, our experience. He says, the Lord, the Lord is my shepherd. I think it's interesting that this isn't the creator, the one who's in charge, is my shepherd. What does Lord imply? It implies a personal relationship, right? It's not this being up there even if that being was, some, was good, it could still be impersonal. But the, the, that, that person is our Lord. That's a personal relationship of some closeness already. And then, to go a step further, my Lord is so much like a shepherd, a good shepherd, who... And because, of, because I have this relationship with, with the shepherd, with the God who is my shepherd, I shall not want anything. Every real need that I have, and even some wants that aren't real needs, I will have. 
And, and, and to define some of our greatest wants, he makes me to lie down in green pastures. What is that? It represents, you know, some kind of a peaceful, adequate environment. He gives me blessings of comfort and peace and, 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 and um, um, what, what, you, what we need materially. And, and not only uh, leads me in, uh, to lie down in green pastures, but he, he, he leads me in, in, in more than, than adequate pastures, besides still waters, which can uh, soothe us and, and uh, don't scare us and provide for our other needs as well. And he restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. And you know, the, you know the psalm. It goes beyond that. Yes, even if I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. You know, more and more of, our, of us and the people around us, I don't know if you've noticed, but, you know, through this wonderful uh, war on terror, we're terrified. I mean, I'm more terrified by the war on terror than the terror. I don't know about you. But I wouldn't be scared about another huge building blowing up and 100,000 people dying in a moment. I'm more scared about what they've done to prevent that. That's got me terrified. And, you know, and every day you see a little bit more of it, right? And, and I notice that, you know, that people who are not in the Christian fold and are just in our society, they're feeling it too. So God's telling us that even when you see these signs of the end approach, you don't have to fear any evil. In fact, in fact, I will prepare a table for you even in the midst of your enemies. And anoint your head with oil. You know, that represented like, like having your feet washed and, and, and getting the best moist skin moisturizers on your nice, clean body. I mean, you're not only going to eat good, you're clean and comfortable. I'll anoint your head with oil, and, and, the, and the abundance of your table that he'll provide for you right in the very presence of the enemies will be such that it will be so abundant your cup will run over. You've got more, more than the cup can hold. So that's, that's the kind of relationship. So that when that happens, then you know, surely, surely, for sure, Goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life here on planet Earth. Whether this world ends in the year 2012 or 2020 or 2033. I know it's going to end before 2033, by the way, because he said he'd caught it, cut it short in righteousness. So it's going to end sometime before then. If you look at it, you know, 
a day is as a, uh, what, a thousand, thousand years is as a day with the Lord. The world's been going on for almost a full 6,000 years. Thousand years of, right, the millennium, a thousand years, the Sabbath. So we're close to the end of, it's, get, it's, it's getting close to, uh, what, Friday evening sundown. Very close. But he'll cut it short in righteousness. If you do your, if you do your, your mathematical computations, you'll find out the year 2033 is the absolute limit. Before the last day of the week, the last seven, the last uh, thousand years. But anyway, he'll cut it short in righteousness. But no matter when it's going to end or how bad it's going to be before it ends, he tells us, surely goodness and mercy will follow me on planet Earth all the days of my life. And furthermore, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So there we are, the lost sheep and the good shepherd who's found us. Now what's it like to follow the what's what's it what is it like to follow the good shepherd? Aside from the fact that he gave his life for us, and that is pretty good. Aside from that, what else is what else is it like to follow the good shepherd? Well, we studied this past quarter all about the fruit of the Spirit. You think of a good quality, and God has it, Jesus has it, and, and offers it to us. Each. Think about it. Linda told me she saw a bumper sticker recently that said, try weight. You ever see that one? Try weight. What do you think that means in Hawaiian? It means, how about having some patience? <laughs> Take it easy. Get off my bumper. Try weight. I like that. You know, any good quality you can think of, gentleness, kindness, not easy to take offense, not provoked, not provocable, long-suffering, forgiving, pure, all from God, all available through the Holy Spirit to us. So what's it like to follow the shepherd? It's, it's good. It's very good. And, and it's very hopeful. Well, that's a quality too. Hope's all things. Not pessimistic. Not discouraged. Not depressed. Hopeful. So it's a very hopeful, happy, happy experience to follow him. And he said... Furthermore, I am meek and lowly in heart. We've talked about that recently. Here's the king of the universe with all power. And you're telling me you are meek and lowly in heart? And so we have the opportunity to be meek and lowly in heart. And through the meek, meek experience of submission with God, 
all those other qualities of godliness are available to us, right? And in order, in order, and what happens as a result, what's another illustration of what happens when we surrender and submit to God in meekness? What, what, remember the illustration? We stay in connection with our parent stock. We stay in connection with our father, the true vine. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. So by staying in connection, his life flows out through us, and we have the fruit of the Spirit. He said, my, you know, my, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. How, how heavy is the burden that you carry in this world, generally speaking, without Christ? Heavy. Heavy. I mean, probably every one of us, unless we grew up kind of, you know, if we grew up in a Christian family and little by little we fell in love with Jesus, that's probably the best way to do it. But any of us who didn't, who didn't come to know Christ that way, we know how heavy the burden is when you're in this world without, without your good shepherd. And so how nice that Jesus said, when you hook up with me, by comparison, it's easy. You know, you, it's not that you don't have responsibilities. It's not that you don't have to put forth an effort. But by comparison to what they're experiencing without a Savior, this burden is easy. This, you know, this burden is light, and this yoke is easy. You know? So, when we do that, and we experience that, not only will the fruit of the Spirit manifest itself in us, and we will have this tendency to obey and to praise God, even at times when we may not feel like it. It's funny, it's funny that story that the pastor, I heard that story direct. He was doing a, an evangelistic series, and he told his experience. And it was as he obeyed and physically jumped for joy when he was totally depressed. With each jump of obedience, he felt a little bit better. And by the time he was through jumping for joy, he was joyous and laughing and realized that God would take care of everything. And it would all be good again, that he would bring good out of evil. Even evil that you don't deserve or evil that you do deserve. God promises to bring joy out of it. So how do we keep in touch with God? Remember the basics? Whether we feel like it or not, commit ourselves, exercise the effort that we would exercise to go find food if we were starving. Right? We would put forth an effort. Even if, we, even if our knee was killing us and our back was, was hurting bad and we were hobbling around on a broken ankle, we would put forth an effort to find food when we're starving. Well, we can put forth an effort to, to read and study God's Word whether we feel like it or not. All right? 
We do that every day by, by, by looking at the Word of God, God's power and the Holy Spirit can come in and work in us. And prayer. We can pray even when we don't feel like it. We can say, Lord, help me to want to speak to you and honestly tell you what I'm experiencing. Even at the very worst. What, what are we told? That Satan and his evil angels tremble at the sight of the weakest human being on their knees before God's throne. That his whole kingdom, is sh- the satanic evil kingdom, is trembles for its survival when the weakest person makes the effort to make that connection. And then as the Holy Spirit works in the life, he really gets shaken up. Because now you're beginning to pray for other people, even. You might even get past your own need and start to think about others. And the intercessory prayer, I'm telling you, I have, this year has been a breakthrough for me. To pray for people by name and, and in some cases beyond, Lord, please help them to confess their sins and cleanse them from all unrighteousness and save them for your kingdom for eternity. Finish the work that you started in them. You know, when you pray for another person by name with that prayer, you're doing something really powerful. Really powerful. And then to actually pray about some specifics, like like my coworker, when I started praying for her salvation, and then to have her come up to me after about a month or probably two months of my praying for her by name and for her family, for her to, ch- to want to share with me the music that she listens to on the way to work, and out of nowhere she's sharing a Christian experience with me, and she listens to that Christian station, and here, listen to my music, it's on my iPod, here, you'll enjoy that this morning. I mean, to me, not only was she sharing something that had become important to her, but it's, al- it's, like, it's almost like she wanted me to know Something has happened to me, and I somehow know that you will appreciate it. You know, I mean, it was marvelous. Marvelous. And then I started praying that she might avail herself of weight loss surgery. And about three or four, three or four months later, she's coming up to me and asking me how to make that possible. I never even even talked about the subject. I mean, I mean, to me, God has opened my eyes about praying for other people. And then, of course, we read about, about Philippians, uh, what we what would admonish to do in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, and that would be thinking the thoughts of God, thinking about the good things, and refusing to go there where we otherwise might go in negative thinking. You know, that's meditation at its best, isn't it? Because if we think after God, we will become that person. And we give God the opportunity to come in and cleanse all those nooks and crannies that are not good, that are of sin in our lives, in our, so- in our soul. And fourthly, the other basic on maintaining that connection is what we're doing right here. Worshiping God, praising God, 
and sharing our experience with him. And we're saying, so just in trying to share the love of God with others, we are actually maintaining our connection. Whether they appear to receive that, that, that sharing at that point in time or not, it's still being done, isn't it? So just in closing, I just want to share a couple of uh, very interesting quotes with you. Uh, but all, all kind of related to uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, which you know the scripture, but seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. We get so distracted by the things of the world and sometimes it's just to have a little security or protection from the things that are terrorizing us. But he says, look, don't worry about that so much, even though you have need for protection. Seek first the kingdom of God, and guess what? I'll protect you. You know? I'll, I'll protect you. What if we were just constantly praying about, please don't let me get mangled and killed and blown up and burned to death in a horrible accident. What if we just kept, I mean, it would be good to pray for protection, but it would be better just to seek God's kingdom and not have to think about that stuff, right? Seek first the kingdom of God. All these things will be added unto you. Here's, here's, a, a, couple of, here's a few interesting, uh, thoughtful quotations from the Spirit of Prophecy. This is what it says. Professed Christians yearly expend an immense sum upon useless and pernicious, harmful indulgences, while souls are perishing for the word of, of life. God is robbed in tithes and offerings while they consume upon the altar of destroying lust more than they give to relieve the poor or for the support of the gospel. The world is given up to self-indulgence. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the lust of life, are controlling the masses of people. But Christ's followers have a holier calling. In the light of God's word, we are justified in declaring that sanctification cannot be genuine, which does not work this utter renunciation of the sinful pursuits and gratifications of the world. And... and Another side of the same coin says, too often Christians allow the cares of life to take the time that belongs to God. Now this is going beyond the Sabbath now. This is just talking about the time that belongs to God. They devote their precious moments to business or to amusement. Their whole energies are employed in acquiring earthly treasure. In so doing, they place themselves on forbidden ground. Many professing Christians are very careful that all their business transactions shall bear the stamp of strict honesty. But dishonesty marks their relations with God. Absorbed in worldly business, they fail to perform the duties they owe to those around them. Their children are not brought up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. The family altar is neglected. Private devotion is forgotten. Eternal interests, instead of being put first, 
are given only the second place. God is robbed because their best thoughts are given to the world because their time is spent on things of minor importance. Thus they are ruined not because of their dishonesty in dealing with their fellow men, but because they have defrauded God of what is rightfully his own. Like the rich man, remember the rich young ruler? Like the rich man, many today are living wholly for the world. The deception of the enemy is upon them, and their senses are perverted. Under this spell, they sacrifice eternal riches for worldly treasures, which will be theirs no longer when their life history closes. And in God's eyes, they are fools. What could be more valuable to anybody, if they were thinking right, than an eternal life in the best house you could possibly imagine, beyond the best house you could imagine, with no sickness, no sorrow, no death, great companionship, no bad vibes, only loving, wonderful, social experiences. Who wouldn't? What Buddhist, atheist, Muslim, practicing Jew, non-practicing Jew, professed Baptist, non-professed Baptist, who, if they were thinking straight, wouldn't sacrifice anything for that. And we have the good news that the sacrifice is nothing more than our pride and our ignorant willfulness and our sin. We have the good news that if we confess our sins and accept our Savior, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What tremendous good news to share with people. And I know that we're doing it. And we can do it, as uh, Sister Joyce pointed out in the Sabbath school lesson, by just being us. Being us in right relationship to God, praising his name, and offering, and offering the best sacrifice of our life that we can at this point in time. Praise God. So, in closing, let us sing number one in the hymnal.